So hello everybody and welcome back to Folk on Falcons. I'm Philip Mundy and joining me is... Ian Joseph. As always, you can find us on social media. So on Facebook, if you type in Folk on Falcons, you'll see our logo. And on Twitter, it's the same, except it's at Folk on Falcons and you'll see the same logo. So for once, we're actually in a good mood this week because we won. Might have only been the Premiership Cup, but won nonetheless. And we won against Leicester, who are top of the... Premiership table, so all things considered, I think we can be very content with the performance that was put in. Yeah, I think we can. I mean, first and foremost, obviously, really nice to come away from Kings Park with a win, or you know, just from any week uh, with, with a win. Obviously, things have been recently. In terms of performance, you know what? I mean, I'm usually misery guts, as you know, but um, I'm going to be really positive because, yes, obviously, it wasn't perfect. Yes, there were plenty of silly knock-ons and ridiculous penalties given away but you know these are obviously players who have kind of been thrown together who haven't played together for a hell of a long time not those players wouldn't have played competitive probably since Biarritz or even before that maybe um so I think cut a bit of slack and there are some players returning who've been out for a long time like Burrell um and all things considered even if it was a very you know young Leicester team you know but they still have some quality but all things considered you know, it's a decent, solid win. Yeah, like I say, nice to sort of come away after a decent performance and a good win. Yeah, you talk about the cobbled together nature of the team. I think what was quite interesting is the Premiership Cup tends to be the competition where people play the, the youth or the the people coming through for the next five or ten years. But our team, there was actually an awful lot of experience on the pitch. And I haven't done any stats because I'm not having enough time to do it. But I reckon if you were to look at the number of caps on that Falcons starting 15 is probably the most that has ever been in any group stage in that tournament because almost every other team you come across is a bunch of 19, 20, 20 year olds are Leicester, whereas we had players that were in the more of the twilights of their career as opposed to the, what's the opposite of twilights, the dawns of their career. Yeah, I think it is obvious and was, was quite, clear, quite clear, especially since he was announced, that it was, like you say, very much a mixture of age. Um, which is unusual, again, as you pointed out, in this tournament. I think it's more usually seen in the European Cup, or the Challenge Cup, rather. You do see more of a mixture of youth and experience, and perhaps teams take that one a bit more seriously. But in this competition, you generally, you know, it gives gives the youth a chance. But I suppose we're just playing the squad we have, don't we? Uh, which is ironic, because obviously we've been saying, oh, we have these great young players coming through, but yet there we are relying on your Tate's, and your Schroeders and your, your Burrells, um, who, I mean, obviously a couple of those have not had a lot of game time for various reasons. Um, I, f- I think the team selection was right in that they gave players the chance to play, you know, doesn't matter what their age was. And, you know, if they've trained well, you know, they've been professional, give them the chance. And also, I think they were hamstrung by injuries in a few positions. Um, I think, even ironically, in positions that are actually normally quite strong in, which is back row and wing, they seem to be hammered in those areas um, over the past couple of weeks. So um, they kind of put out the team which they had at their disposal. I think it was a, a decent balance, certainly at the starting team was anyway. Yeah, there's a um, couple of new faces or newer faces, those that don't necessarily make it into the starting 15 every week. And I think... Um, Honourable mentions have to go to Lockwood playing at number seven, who showed that he's got a real turn of pace on him when he gets a bit of open field ahead of him. And also Kerr on the wing, I think, had a particularly good game. I thought Merrick as well actually ran the line out pretty well. Um, I thought an interesting one actually when he came on the second half was Dalton. Uh, I know there wasn't a huge amount of fanfare when they signed him in the summer, but it was, you know, it was a bit of press about it. I mean, he was sort of highly 
regarded coming from Munster. He was all on the fringes there, but he still had a lot to offer. But really, we haven't sort of seen him feature. I remember when I went to that preseason friendly in Edinburgh, he was on for about half the game, and he looked pretty decent there. So I, I guess because there's so much competition, isn't there? We have in the back row and second row, and, and I. So, you know, you, you see all those players. Well, I don't think Dalton is, he's not particularly old, but I don't think he's sort of one of the youngest players we have as well. So we, it was, as I said before, and you said very much a, a mixture of these sort of different types of fringe players. But I think, as you say, in particular, I think Lockwood um, showed us a really sort of, I think the couple of moments he did really kind of got everyone off their seats. And apparently we were with Zach Kerr, read from Wolder's comments that uh, didn't know he was playing, so obviously he wasn't the squad he came in because uh, of injuries later on, but uh, apparently you're sitting in a lecture or something at Newcastle University, and Dave Ward again would call them with the lecture saying, "Oh, by the way, you're playing later tonight." So it's uh, all right for some, isn't it? If you sit there in your lecture, suddenly Falcons say, "Do you want to get your boots and play a couple of hours?" But yeah, but I mean, didn't didn't look out of place, did he? I suppose you know he took his took his try one and put in good performance. Very much so, and um, I think we also got to um, say it off in the end because in true Falcons style. We've made very hard work of things. Um, we had a reasonably good start, but didn't really make the scoreboard pay. And then when you have another look at, up a few minutes later, suddenly you realise we're behind on the scoreboard. And you think, how on earth has that happened? And Leicester's youth were managing to get points whilst our experienced team weren't, especially in the first half. Yeah, well, it's sort of a Falcons trait, isn't it? Or pattern, I suppose, when quite often in a lot of these games, I think especially at home, we are in the lead for large parts of it. We're often in the lead for about 20 minutes, 15 minutes to go. And then we seem to sort of just completely go off the pace and other teams kind of put us to the sword in the last few minutes. You often get, you know, a late try or two or more um, in those final few minutes. But it was sort of the reverse this time, wasn't it? Where um, obviously we were ahead for large parts and Leicester got ahead and you sort of thought, well, you know, I'm not going to get this back now going by how we normally finish games. But of course it was the reverse for us getting a couple of tries towards the end. But you're right in that it was just one to kind of get into that position. I felt that, the, their tries, especially out wide again, were kind of pretty easy for them. But like I said, I don't want to be too critical because it was very much a cobbled together team and they're not going to be perfect. Um, I think it was also because it was, it was a cobbled together team and a team we don't normally see. I thought some of the phase play was a bit more exciting and faster pace than normal, whether that's because our personnel or because it's quite clearly it's not a lesser team you get in the, in the league. Probably both of those factors, but it made it entertaining watching and Certainly after I thought about the first 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, it was just generally a very entertaining game, despite, you know, some of the negatives. But overall, I think it's pretty good, really. Yes, and um, obviously we had our secret weapon on the bench in the back row, Mr Jamie Blumeyer. Um, I think it turned a few heads when they read the team sheet and thought there might have been the wrong number next to him, but it seems to be that he was one of the few left that <laughs> wasn't injured or said he was available and said, yeah, I'll have a go there. I think he's played the back row in the past very briefly, um, not for extended periods, but I think he's turned up there in the past um, filling in before. Yeah, apparently. Was it was it his premiership debut or very close to it where you think he did come on emergency in the back row? I think that may have been the only time or maybe another time. But, you know, I suppose fair credit to him. He's come back from England, and I guess just wants to play, doesn't he? And just says, yeah, whatever, I'll just go. Fairship cut, whatever, sure, put me back row. I'll pick the ball up a few times and shove in the scrum in a slightly different position and whatever, you know. So, you know, fair enough, credit to him. Yeah, I think we'll uh, we'll touch on England a bit later on, but I think he probably had a bit more of an enjoyable evening back in the North East than he has down on various training camps and at Twickenham in the past. But anyway, we'll touch on that later. Um, when I, when we got our fourth try, I texted you with a kind of a facetious what do we do now sort of thing. Now we've got four tries, what happens? And then you, you promptly replied in your miserable way, we lose. And I thought you'd gone and jinxed it for a good 
good 15 minutes when you just watched the game fall to pieces in front of us. Well, you know, if you watch them long enough, you know, I mean, you, you kind of, you, unfortunately, you kind of know generally what's going to happen. Uh, but I think the, the excitement also at the end was in terms of that they really had to get that try and the conversion at the end, not only to win, but also they because Leicester got their bonus point try, it meant that if we'd won by less than seven points, we would have been second in the group. And it would have been, in terms of qualification, even if we'd beat Northampton, um, it would be completely out of our hands. It would all depend on Leicester's result. But that last play of the game, that wide conversion from Conan, is what sealed us top place. And it was it was kind of interesting because I think a lot of people then you watching the BT commentary, I wasn't everyone's favourite, Austin Healy, couldn't believe why they kicked for the corner rather than just sort of sealing the win by going for the easier three points. But I think the crowd was the same, and not just the crowd, I think some of the players were pointing to Conan, you know, go for goal, go for goal. Eventually, he did go for what, I don't know why, maybe he knew, or they just thought, ah, stuff it, let's just go for another try. Uh, but obviously, he did the right decision in the end, and we, we ended up winning by more than seven. But People didn't, nobody, well, not nobody, but lots of people all over didn't realise that we had to get that conversion, had to win the all seven points to top the group. Otherwise, we went, I know we weren't out of it, but it would be have been very, very difficult to progress. So it was a really sort of exciting end of the game, not just in terms of obviously the comeback, but, you know, the actual points as well. Yeah, very much so. Um, I was looking at the group table as the game went on, and when we got our bonus point try, I thought, well, hey, here we go. And then when Leicester got their try back, it was almost a double bonus point they got because they scored their fourth try. And at the same time, they got within seven. So they had two then. And then obviously they got ahead and we managed to pull it back and eventually win it. But um, we are currently one point ahead of them in the group. We're going to play Northampton in the next leg. And you'd hope for five points there because um, Northampton are out of it. So wouldn't surprise me. It's also a midweek one. So there's no chance that Northampton will play anyone that's vaguely going to have to appear at the weekend following that game. I think. Uh, all money should be on Falcons taking it seriously and hopefully getting a five-point win. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we will take it seriously because it's in our hands, isn't it? If we win, well, it doesn't even be a five-point win. If we win, uh, well, actually, no, it does, doesn't it? Because I said less to get five points. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it is in our hands, though, in that you're right. Yeah, sorry, you're right. If we do get the five-point win, or if we equal or better Leicester's result, then we go through. So it is entirely in our hands. But I won't write off Northampton uh, for the reason, one, because, you know, then there is Falcons. Uh, so you never know what you're going to get. But also, despite Northampton pretty much being out of the tournament before, well, after, you know, before they kicked off on Saturday, they still managed to beat Saracens 46-35 away. So maybe the fact they don't have anything to play for and kind of takes the pressure off them a bit, but it's going to be a tough game. Would you say we're favourites? I don't know. I think, yeah, the emphasis is obviously going to be more on us, but I think we just look forward to it, really, can't we? You know, if we lose, you think, oh, well, a bit frustrating, but not the end of the If we win, you think, oh, here we go, you know, cut. Cup semi-final, isn't it? Um, you never know what happens, I suppose. But yeah, looking forward to that one. As you say, so something unusual about this is, as you've said, it's a midweek game and it's actually on Wednesday the 30th of March. Um, so we do have that Wasps League game in the middle of it. So I suppose those players who have played have a bit more of a rest and I'm sure they're probably champing at the bit to have another game as soon as possible. But yeah, unusual midweek one on Wednesday. And like you say, got to imagine Northampton won't be playing their strongest players in a dead rubber midweek game. So... The emphasis, as I say, will be on us, but let's we, we well we can't take it lightly, can we? We still have to do a pretty good job over them. Yeah, and I think one final thing that's got to be said is it's, it was quite nice to see Tate get on the score sheet at the end because 
been a fantastic servant to the club over the years. And obviously he's not played for a couple of months, but he's been saving himself for the last minute on the Friday night and dives into Dutch it down for the for the win. And obviously one final match has to go to Conan, who obviously kicking on the night was a bit inconsistent at times, but the one that counts he got. So um got to say that he handled the pressure reasonably well with that one. So not only was it a wonderful win because we won and we won against Leicester, but also the preceding week had been one where I think a lot of people had got quite annoyed with uh, Leicester Rugby Club. I was making a few jokes to you about we're going to fly your drone and with a load of Monopoly money attached to it and all this sort of thing. In the in the ground before the game, was there much in the way of playing all the money, money, money and all that sort of thing on the PA system or not? No, unfortunately not at all. Uh, you you got to think that may have been too tongue-in-cheek, I think, for the Falcons on a, in a cup game you won against Leicester. Uh, no, there, there, was, there was no mention at all, really, I don't think. Um, I guess the fact, you know, obviously, they were playing the kids or whatever probably mitigated it as well a bit, wasn't it? Because you would have thought those players are not going to be the players who would be breaching the salary cap. No, but it was, at all, but it, yeah, it, it was obviously it, probably the main rugby news point, certainly domestic rugby news point of, of the preceding week. Um, and lots of questions to be asked, I think, as to why the punishment was so light and you know putting it all to a side who loses out again well us because of course one of the seasons like with Saracens when it happened was when we got relegated yes so um, a bit of background to the the Saracens one the last one and the perceived differences so Saracens were deemed to have been blatantly cheating deliberately which (laughs) by all intents and purposes they were by the sounds of it Um, legal disclaimer here Everything you say is purely hypothetical opinion based and in the names of comedy and Ian and I aren't making spirit allegations that will stand up in court. So the, the Saracens one um, was obviously blatant cheating and they refused to even open their books, which is why they got docked the points and then their further docking of the points, um, i.e. they got relegated. Leicester, on the other hand, it, the more you read about this, the more you think how contrived is the whole rule writing procedure, but... You had the salary cap and it was six or six and a half million pounds, depending on which season it was. And then they've got this thing called an overrun. And that basically means if you go over the salary cap by a little bit, a little bit being within 300 or 350,000, I think it was, then you effectively get penalised for every pound that you went over the salary cap up to that level before it gets super serious. And consistently for four or five years in a row, they went over the salary cap. Therefore, for every pound they spent, over the salary cap, they had to pay a fine, I think, of 50 pence in the, in the pound, which, yes, it's a fine or whatever, but what it basically means, as far as I can tell, is that if you can afford to break the salary cap, then you can do so, and all you end up doing is basically getting a levy on all of the wages in that little £350,000 bracket, which you can get away with. And yeah, that, a levy is an, an annoyance, and it's a fine nonetheless, but if you can afford it, then... Does it really matter? Is it really that much of a punishment to get? They got about a three hundred thousand pound fine several years later. Does it, it's not really very fair, given that the league or the season that we got relegated most recently in the second or third last game we played Leicester Tigers, and it was an extremely close game, and we always beat them. And I remember the last phase of the game they got a turnover, and that was that. But had we won that game against Leicester, then I've got every confidence that we would have won one of the next two. So I think we're playing Bristol as well, one of the last games of the season that weren't particularly good that year. And we probably would have stayed up. And I just feel like the financial repercussions on the Falcons of going down in the COVID year or the year before the COVID year 
then having the half a season in the championship and then coming back up and all the rest that's followed, it's going to be a lot more than £300,000 worth of damages that we've got from it. But the rules say that Leicester can just get a slap on the wrist in terms of a fine and then we have to take it on the chin. But we should have just hired Dan Carter, Richie McCaw and whoever else for the last couple of games of the season, made them get a couple of wins and paid them 200 grand with a bit of a levy and then said, oh, well, what, what, what a shame, never mind. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's the sort of frustrating absurdity factor is that it actually, you're better off breaking, the rules allow it to, to be better off to break the rules, to break the salary cap, breach the salary cap, than to be relegated. So by do, you know by being fair and being right and you know taking your punishment and being relegated is a more substantial punishment at every level, at, at every degree, than getting the, the fine that the Leicester have had. And it, it does raise questions. I mean, it's obvious questions. It's just, so how is that right? How is that fair? But also it raises questions about the salary cap. So is the salary cap really a salary cap? Because or quite obviously, you know, there is a degree where you can breach it and that does give unfair advantages. And you can you can vary that unfair advantage from season to season. You can you can take into account you know, if, in terms of your, your accounts and finances, you know, what it's going to be season by season in terms of your signings as well. And that that's just unfair. And I think that that's, going by the rules, I, you know, you can understand why there is mitigation for Leicester rather than Saracen. I think Leicester are much more cooperative as well than Saracens. Um, and they're much more readily to admit it at an earlier stage. And also, I think what also helped Leicester was a lot of the people responsible for that have now gone and aren't running the club. Um, so the people who are running in Africa have inherited that and been very open about it. So that that is a mitigation. But again, that doesn't necessarily negate the point of, of it's unfair on us, as always, on the Falcons in particular, because we're the ones who, at the end of the day, directly or indirectly, are the ones who, who came out worse from it, not, not Leicester or even Saracens. Yeah, um, obviously, the reason we're saying we came out worse than other clubs that got relegated in other seasons is because, obviously, the year that we finished bottom, Leicester finished second bottom, whereas in other years that wasn't the case. What has to be said, though, is it's actually quite funny that even though Leicester managed to spend above and or up to and above the salary cap, they still did so badly that year. It just shows what real problems they had at the club. But um, one thing it does make a bit easier is normally I, uh, we record the podcast and I start editing it and I scratch my head thinking, what on earth am I going to call it this week? Whereas you've got your big cats, i.e. Tigers, and you've got your small cats, which I think are cheetahs, aren't they? So makes the title this week a bit easier, something to do with Leicester cheetahs. So there we go. Anyway, so we can move on before we uh, get ourselves done for libel or speak out of turn. Um, and uh, we can look ahead to Wasps, which is in the Premiership. But the Rico Arena on Saturday. Wasps, are one, I, I call them the Milton Keynes of rugby because... They effectively did what MK Dons did to Wimbledon, which was shift the club, say, sorry, sorry, mate, to all their old fans that were the ones that put the effort in getting them from the amateur to professional area, and then turned up at another club or another city and put said, well, we're here now. So you had Milton Keynes Football Club went into administration shortly after MK Dons arrived in town. And in Coventry, you, they already had a decent rugby team. It just happened to not be in the premiership. And... Wasps turn up, and I, it, I don't know. It just really annoys me what happened. With Wasps moving to Coventry, and then the fact that the proper Coventry rugby club now plays second fiddle, and no one's really heard of them. Um, so I, I don't have too much sympathy for Wasps. So it should be quite good uh, fun going there, and hopefully getting another victory. Yeah, um, it's uh, well, it's going to be very tough. Of course, I'm going to say is every week the way we're playing. We we put the cup win to one side. It's obviously a very different team, but I think more importantly, very different level of opponents. 
I can't say anything but a Wasps win. Um, I mean, maybe things have been a bit buoyed up by our Cup win, but again, it's to do with the opposition, isn't it? The way our league form is going, I just can't see us picking any picking up a win. I mean, I think what we can try to for is maybe get a losing bonus point from it. It's about just trying to maintain the gap between bottom, isn't it? That, that's that's our objective now for this season. It has to be. It's just not to finish bottom. Is it impossible then get one away to Wasps? Well, no. Um, Wasps can be a bit of a funny team. You know, they, they carry off their form in patches, maybe on an off day and maybe if we turn up, you know, we, we can get something. But I think it's going to be very tough. And I think we just got to try and look to... If we get a if we get a point from that game, I think it's going to be a very good point. And yeah, and we'll just take it from there. Because, I, you know, if we do start to get some sort of points and try and build a bit of a gap between us and Bath, or at least trying to equal or better their results. I think that confidence will come from that, even if it's not necessarily wins. I think if we just start to pick up points, it's a bit of momentum that can kind of try and help to kind of take us forward later in the season. I mean, in terms of a league game, we don't. There's, there's a gap again, isn't there? Because we played um, Zebra in the Cup, in the Challenge Cup, after Wasps as the next home game. So I think we want to get something from it in order to kind of try and pick up a bit of league momentum. Yeah, I'll be making my way there, but it could be a, could be a long old afternoon. But what I would say is, in the past, we've actually picked up points against Wasps on recent occasions. And I'm just trying to think about who Wasps are missing out on because of international duties and whether they'll still be missing out. But we'll have Fuza back, obviously, from his wonderful victory against Wales, and Blamire will be back for us. So our team, I think, should be relatively close to um, full, if not complete strength, pretty, pretty good strength. Um, whereas I think Wasps might still have a couple of players out from internationals. It's so hard to tell though, isn't it? Because um, it seems, it's just me, it seems to be especially for the Hawkins team, you're never quite sure what it is going to be week to week. I think the keys are sent as well. I mean, I don't know if Orlando is going to be back, but Burrell play more of a part? Do they kind of keep the centre partnership from Saracens? I think those are kind of the key questions. I think generally the forwards, uh, injuries permitting, will be the fairly standard ones we've seen the past few weeks. Um, backs, in terms of, well, the wingers, should I say, rather. I would like to see Carreras back, but I have absolutely no idea, you know, when he's going back. I mean, they're clubbing every sort of forthcoming in terms of injury layoffs, aren't they? Because I think he would add something which would be missing out wide as well, that bit of dynamism, which, you know, as as sometimes Earl does put a good shift, but I think having Carreras and Radwan is much more dynamic for us. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's hard to tell really at this stage, but I think we'll probably see a fairly similar team from Saracens and you know, maybe a couple back from injury. If Carreras isn't back, somebody may well be back. It might be um, young Owen Stevens because I think he played for Bladen two or three weeks ago and then he was called up into the England 20 squad that got beaten by France at the weekend. So, as far as I'm aware, he wasn't injured in that ma- match for England 20s. So, if we want that bit of dynamism that Carreras may offer, then he's the obvious replacement for that because on on merit he doesn't necessarily have to be a replacement he, he could run Carreras very close to the start in 15 when he's fit and um, obviously I think he pulled some ligaments and it into one of his legs before he got injured earlier in the season but he was um, finishing things off quite nicely just before then yeah I think we really missed him actually it was unfortunately he got his, his ligament injury because obviously me he's been out for a long long time and he kind of felt it was sort of similar type of player to Radwan sort of that's kind of what we were thinking as and perhaps not quite as a yet complete player but I think we've definitely missed him I think we have missed something on the wings with both him and Carreras out and I think 
a lot of as ever expectation has been put on Radwan to kind of do stuff that maybe those two players can also offer. So hopefully, you know, one or two of those players can start to come back and, and kind of take some pressure off Radwan and some of the backs in general. What I'd say is I wouldn't say he's necessarily a Radwan style player in that I think Radwan's got more outright gas than him and seems has probably got a bit more of a step than Radwan. But um I think both of them are natural one-on-one finishers. Whereas in the recent weeks, we've had various versions of teams out and um, for all pennies filled in very ably on the wing. He's not a winger. One-on-one, he's going to struggle to beat someone in a 15-yard channel. Whereas both Stevens and Radwan, they do it slightly different ways, but they can get past that opposite man. And earlier in the season, when the two of them were on the pitch at the same time, two things happened. One is, I remember a couple of breaks that one of them would get and they'd end up offloading to the other one. And also, when Stevens is on the pitch... Um, Radwan gets a bit more space and also when Radwan's marked which has been happening a lot recently hopefully it'll give Stevens some space so basically can they can the opposition mark both of them or will there be a bit more room out wide or perhaps um, not necessarily Radwan marked off the park which has happened a lot recently yeah I think the interesting about Stevens as well is perhaps he's a bit more of an unknown quantity for oppositions as well um, obviously they all know about Radwan they've marked him out the game pretty successfully over probably majority of the season now but if you have him and Stevens in there causing havoc with their pace then that gives us another dimension which we've been sorely missing for quite a while now uh, I mean I think also helped with Stevens the, the team was actually playing pretty well when he was in the team maybe it was symptomatic that he was part of that bit and they were playing well because of him I mean, that's a lot, I guess that's a lot of praise on his shoulders, but um, I think it would definitely help to have him back. You know, as, as we've said, it does add something which we've been sorely missed um, out wide. Because um, I just don't think, as you say, Penny and I mentioned Earl kind of can really sort of add that pace um, that can relieve pressure in attack off the backs and, and Radwan especially. Other major rugby news of the week has to go Six Nations, and um, just before we touch on England, I think um, Honourable Mention has to go to Mr Fuser, who put in a stellar performance against the Welsh and got Italy's first victory in 30-odd games, is it? Something like that. I, think, I mean, forget about anything else. I know we were saying, oh, how great it is to watch France and, you know, what a gem they are it's come the past couple of years, but I think that Italy win, has, it's got to be up there as one of the best Six Nations moments I've seen for a long time. Um, it, it was just you know you can always see it. you could see it coming really the way the game was going you know they're always in it you know Wales just weren't that good at all and that they had that you know they they looked pretty good out wide with the wingers and fullback and you know once the space was there and you saw what was going to happen you thought this is it they've, they've done it they've won it of course once under the post he's always going to get the kick but yeah it's brilliant and it's you know I think a lot of people well I would say about ninety nine percent of sort of rugby supporters probably have an egg on their face because it is quite a common feeling that, you know, that are Italy good enough? Should there be relegation and promotion? And then, you know, they, you know the Italy team are always capable of doing something like this. Um, it's just it happens so infrequently, but they always, you know, you always feel like they, it's this feeling they've always been on the verge of maybe doing wins like this, but they just, the question is, can they, you know, we say sort of every time after they have a win, can they now kick on and get two wins a tournament or more or will this be again their first win or their only win in about 30 odd games yeah so um i'll be very honest i've been quite an open critic of the six nations in its current format with italy for quite a while now um i do feel there should be some sort of playoff between bottom of six nations and top of the uh lesser tournament probably someone like um 
got Portugal and Spain that are now qualifying for things or Romania or Georgia or whoever it ends up being. But um, obviously Italy have shown they've still got it. And I think the Six Nations, um, yes, they've been battered by everyone most weeks, but in all of the matches, they've actually done all right for the first 15, 20 minutes. Against England, it took a bit of time for us to get, get them broken down. Um, against Ireland, they played okay until they went down to 13 players. Even when they had 14, they were still defending all right. Um, against Scotland, they put in a decent 20-odd minutes. And then this one against Wales, they obviously stayed in the game with a succession of penalties, and then Wales got back into it and you thought, oh, that's a step too far for them. But then, obviously, this winger who's Levenstone ringing wet through, scampers through and, yeah, s- sends a teammate in under the posts, and you just think, well, fair enough, you've still got it, but... I think that moves us on to England, that England have lost to, or sorry, England have only beaten Italy and the team that lost to Italy being Wales in our Six Nations campaign. And yes, we finished third. And I think that's the only silver lining to be taken, but that's just because the other results panned out the way they did. It's nothing to do with us finishing third on merit. The campaign's been nothing short of a disaster as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I mean, disaster very kindly. Um, is it any better than the last year's second bottom finish? I mean, only because they finished third, which, as you say, I think is very flattering for them, actually. Another disaster. You know, we could see this coming. I, you know, within the first five minutes of the Scotland game, you just knew how it was going to pan out. And once they lost to Scotland, you knew... Well, you definitely knew then what the rest of the tournament was going to be like. It was always going to be uphill. The performances since then, it's not even like, you know, you get these games where you just have a bad game or whatever, but then, you know, a good team bounces back from that and, you know, wins the next five, sorry, the next four games or whatever. But just don't look at it. Like, there's not just the, the odd team selection. It's the way they play. I think, barring the, the Italy win, which obviously then was a big win, we just don't score tries. Like, we just... We're not exciting to watch. We don't look dynamic in attack. It's, it's almost like the Falcons, isn't it? It's in the backs, isn't it? We just don't look like we're going to run through many tries. Um, and it, it's not even that. It's visits to the opposition 22 must be a record low for England in any tournament. Um, we're just so devoid of anything. I mean, I know obviously it didn't help with, with the island, with the, the island game was sending off. But even, even so, there were still moments in that which we were just really, really poor despite everything. It's a disaster. And, and it's really worrying because you've obviously got the World Cup next year. And we're, we're in absolutely no position to perform competently in the World Cup. I mean, we may well get out of the group, but that's an absolute minimum expectation. Maybe it's a case of once you're in the knockout stage, anything can happen. But I think our expectation has got to be pretty low. And it's it's just awful. Like, I think this is probably the worst it's been for many many years to be an England fire it's terrible and unfortunately it just doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon considering Eddie Jones has been given um, unfortunately a very strong vote of confidence yeah I was in the pub watching the game on Saturday night and I was sitting next to a, a good friend who um, he's not a particular rugby fan but he's got a MasterCard so he'd signed up for the England package on MasterCard so he's going to four or five games and he kept talking about it being preparation for the Rugby World Cup and I wanted to put my fist down his throat by the end of the night because as far as I'm concerned you can't be talking about preparation for Rugby World Cup when there's another Six Nations before it and it's 18 months away it's just an easy excuse for people to peddle the RFU slash Eddie Jones Emperor's New Clothes if it's all fine and dandy it's an absolute disgrace and embarrassment to be trying to justify only winning two games in the Six Nations as preparation for a Rugby World Cup. If it's preparation for a Rugby World Cup, you should be winning it, or at least doing well, not performing massively under par. There's, there's nothing preparation-based about this. If you were, I don't know, trying to varnish a table, you might prepare it by 
sandpaper in the table before varnishing it. It's like we've started preparing for the World Cup by taking a circular saw and chopping the table into as many pieces as we can. It's I don't know what that analogy is all about, but it's not preparation. It's rubbish. And something needs to change. I think one thing that is refreshing is that in the 48 hours since that match, other people seem to have caught on to, I've called it Emperor Eddie's new clothes sort of thing, that actually it's not all wonderful. There are serious problems inside the RFU and Eddie Jones's management structure. And there are dissenting voices in the uh, wider press now, which up to now have remained somewhat muted. Yeah, um, and I think something that illustrates that is you see... Um, I just I didn't necessarily see who said the comments at first, but I saw the comments say England finish as a disgrace and an embarrassment. And this isn't that wasn't sort of Matt Dawson or um, you know Lawrence Salalio or Sir Clive Wood or anyone like that. That was actually Sam Warburton. So you're now getting way you know Welsh players or players from other countries who you, you know can see you know how bad England are. If you're getting those type of, of pundits commenting, saying, oh, yeah, um, this is terrible for England, then something's very much wrong. And it's as you say, you start to get other pundits who perhaps have been more sympathetic or be less less critical, maybe critical, but less critical than have been, and now really sort of get the knives out Freddie Jones. Um, I mean, for example, Ugo Monia, who is probably as white as white as a pundit you can get for most of the time, um, is is really going in for him now. And I think people are really starting to realise it's, it's just ridiculous and they're just absolutely fed up. I mean, going to the point about how can you have, you know, the preparation for a World Cup, you know, 18 months for a World Cup, you should have a system in place. You should know what your team is. You, you should know what your, mainly your starting 15 is going to be going at this stage for a World Cup. Yes, you can experiment in the summer or whatever with you, you know, your autumn internationals and summer internationals and whatnot, but you should have an idea of a system, a style of play, and what your personnel is going to be. I mean, England's all over the place. You know, he plays people out of position. You know, it's, we, we keep doing the same awful tactics. It's too much kicking, which obviously doesn't work, and it's still done every week um, or every game, rather. And it's this. If there is a system, it doesn't work. It, it's, it's the right thing to do the South Africa thing when they got Erasmus in 18 months for the World Cup. Probably, but unfortunately, it's not going to do that. But it needs needs really sort of root and branches, radical change at the RFU and, and with that England team. Otherwise, it's just going to be an absolute disaster in the next couple of years. Yeah, I was, I was trying to think about things. At the RFU, what process has to go through to, for Eddie Jones to get taken out? And I'm trying to think who it is that was actually sacking. I think he's been there long enough now that You've probably filled the board or whatever with enough people that are sympathetic to him. That it's going to be a real job for any sort of inside coup or anything to to get rid of him. And if we look at what what Eddie Jones' next match is, it's months away. All he has to do is keep his head down, go on holiday, and have a couple of pina clouds on the beach, and just not not say anything and do anything. Never just forget. Or people will stop going for his head in the way they are now if he just keeps his mouth shut. And then the next time it'll surface as an issue is probably in the autumn internationals when we don't have a terribly good thing. But we, oh dear, we're within a year of a World Cup now, we can't um, can't be mucking around with things too much. Next six nations will be a disaster. We'll probably get to a quarterfinals of the World Cup, and then hopefully at that point, enough's enough. But if, if if we do well in the World Cup, fantastic news. But as far as I'm concerned, we need to do well in the Six Nations, and then the World Cup can take care of itself. I mean, which you know, it's the arrogance of Eddie Jones, which obviously the term which has been used quite a bit with him, uh, to think that he's kind of that he's right. Every Everyone is wrong. He's above very warranted criticism, and he's, uh, you know, if it doesn't, if it's not working, you know, if you're coach of England and you've had those Six Nations performances year after year, you know, I, I think you should just go. 
Like, I think you should just go. And if you're not going to go because it's a job, you know, the RFU should tell you, well, you know, this is this just isn't good enough. You know, this is your job. And look at your previous record. Yes, not the final World Cup, but that's years ago now. But you're right. It, it's all just going to be Eddie Jones sympathizers. And, and the arrogance of it also is that he's just going to stay there until he wants to go which you would hope and probably think is probably after the next World Cup. But it's it's also the fact that he's going to put us through all that suffering just for his, the sake of his own ego, I suppose. Um, and for, just because it's easy and comfortable for him. And then just, yeah, and just kind of trail the RFU, the team and all the supporters just through the mud in the process. Yeah, I think one other thing to take into account is can the RFU actually afford to sack him? Because he's the highest paid coach in the world. I think he's on about three quarters of a million pounds a year. And it's not just him that would end up going because... When, when they zoom in on him um, uh, high up in the stands during the game, watching it all fall to bits in front of him with a smile on his face, you've got about six people with their England tracksuits next to him. Got, not got a clue who half of them are. There's a couple of reasonably well-known faces there. But then you'll have all the people that you, you don't have in that little booth in the stadium. And how many people has he managed to get in positions that um, his whole entourage, if, if he goes, his whole entourage will have to go and to pay all those lot off. It'll be an absolute fortune. And although we've got Twickenham and we sell it out and we make loads of money from TV and Autumn Internationals and all that, for all intents and purposes, when you, whatever you see about England rugby seems to be cash-strapped. And you just got to scratch your head sometimes and think, how on earth are they doing this? But it does seem like we're cash-strapped. And can we actually afford to get rid of him? Um, it's a good question. I mean, can they afford to do it? I would say yes, but there's very much unwilling. And, and it's it's it's... Can they afford to? Yes, I think they can. Do they want to bear the cost of that? No. Is there a willingness to take the decision to, to do that and bear the cost? Absolutely not. Um, so that's the point where we're just stuck with it until after the World Cup. You know, if it, if they win the World Cup, fair enough, fine. You know, wins the World Cup, great. But you know, that's not going to happen, is it? And it, it's just it's just like it, it's some of the worst what the RFU is. It's the disconnect, isn't it? I mean, it's a disconnect because, as you say, it's just filled up with people who want him there and like him and sympathise with him. They're just tone deaf to what any sort of half-competent rugby fan can, can see. Not e- and the point is, not even England fans, any any fan, sort of rugby fan can sort of see how deep the problems are with England now in, in all aspects. Um, from, you know, the RFU, the board the board level, the coaches, the players. It's Like I say, it's just, it's just not going to change before the World Cup. But I think we just have to grin and bear the World Cup and just fingers crossed it's not too humiliating and then take it from there. But God, what a few years that's going to be. Yeah, entirely. Anyway, um, so we've managed to go from quite a positive upbeat spirit about Falcons to once again a, a rant but there we go hopefully oh there shouldn't be any more England rants in the near future given that the Six Nations is now over so on that note if we uh, just do a quick roundup of uh, the scores um, and the the national stage to s- sum up the Six Nations so obviously it was billed as Super Saturday all the games in one day Wales lost to Italy by a point 21 points to 22 Ireland put away Scotland 26 points to 5 and France beat us 25 points to 13. That left the Six Nations table as follows. France getting the Grand Slam with 25 points. Ireland getting second place with 21. England with 10. Scotland with 10, but on points difference behind us. Wales on seven and Italy on four. In the Premiership Rugby Cup on Friday night, Bristol absolutely trounced Bath 61 points to 19. London Irish beat Harlequins 34 points to 19. And obviously we beat Leicester 36 points to 28. On Saturday in the Premiership Rugby Cup, Sale beat Wasps 26 points to 14. Exeter played Worcester and won 31 points to 29. And Saracens got beaten in quite a high scoring affair by Northampton 35 points to 46. And there were no games on Sunday. Um, if we just have a quick look at the Premiership Rugby Club pools, 
then we'll get our crystal balls out because um, it's, the, it's the time when we can start trying to work out what on earth is going to happen. So group one, Gloucester top of that group, having played three, one, two, and lost one, followed by Gloucester and Exeter both on 11 and Bristol on 10. So that one's very much all open and who knows what's going to happen there. Uh, we are first in Pool B, followed by Leicester with 10, and then Wasps have six and Sale have five. So if we're perfectly honest, in our group, it's all in our hands because we're playing Northampton in the next game, who happen to be in Pool C, because it's this funny crossover thing. So Northampton have... Oh, we'll start with London Irish. London Irish have 15 points, Northampton have seven, Saracens have six, and Harlequins have six also. So London Irish have won their group and they're through. It's a shame we're not playing them. Um, we are playing Northampton, and Northampton, in theory, can qualify, but it's quite unlikely. So... Um, Let's hope they play a weakened team and then we beat them. So that would put us top of the group, assuming we get a bonus point. And then that means that we would end up probably finishing as the third best winner of the group, which I think means we then play the second best winner of the group, which looks like it would be the team from Pool A, which may well end up being Worcester or Gloucester. If we win without a bonus point and Leicester win their group, then we would finish probably the second or potentially the second best second place unless Worcester or Gloucester or Exeter end up winning also and have better points difference. That's when it gets a bit funny. But if we finish second place, and I think we'll probably end up playing London Irish if I've understood the tournament correctly, but um, I might not have done. I think basically with that, if uh, I think if we finish second in our pool, I think it's going to be very difficult for us to progress. And if you look at the especially in group a um the second place team in there already has a pretty good points total so i think if we finish second there you would imagine whoever finishes second in that group will probably end up with more points than us um which is why it was so important to win by seven by over seven points against leicester uh, of course as i say if we beat if so if we better or equal leicester's score or results um then we will we will go through top and then obviously we'll just have to see who we play from that point yeah, so if we just go around the region at the other scores, um, on Saturday, Darlington Madden Park beat Leeds Tykes. What a fall from grace for Leeds Tykes. That was 23 points to 22 at Headingley. Um, they still play at Headingley. I presume they do. I don't actually know. Um, National League 2 North, Tandale beat Sheffield Tigers, and Bladen picked up a losing bonus point at Starbridge in the high-scoring affair there. Um, Concert lost to Moortown, um, just missing out on a bonus point in another high-scoring fixture, and Durham City got beaten by Morley. Um, score of the week, oh, there's a couple of contenders here. Um, Ashington beat Wynn Leighton 91-0, but Walls End beat Jerovins 102 points to 7, so I think anybody who gets a turn-up has to win uh, score of the week. So it goes to Wells End for beating Jerovians by 95 points. So that brings to the end uh, of Folk and Falcons, where we still manage our big rant, but we have a win. And we're currently top of a group, which is obviously fantastic news. So until next time, hopefully we can report another victory against Wasps. Um, might be a bit, a bit trickier than the, the last one, but at least we're back to winning and hopefully a habit continues. So thank you for listening, everybody. Bye, everyone.